If you have a look at the screen, you'll see, uh, before we get into the text, there are three books. Uh, I'm sorry for the yellow. It's a, it's a bit hard to see. It's white on yellow. doesn't project well. But these are three books that I want to recommend if you are exploring any of these three issues. The one on the right is really obvious, Married Before God. If, if you just want a book to read on marriage, talks about the nature of marriage, talks about how to um, improve your marriage if you are married, uh, what marriage involves if you're getting into marriage, or how to encourage people who are married, that's a good way of married for God. The issue of homosexuality, uh, gay and lesbianism, homosexuality and homosexual attraction, these are big issues in our world. Uh, there's a Christian in England by the name of Sam Albury, he's been to Australia many times, who would describe himself as being same-sex attracted That's where he faces temptation, but he's chosen to live a celibate life and he opens up about what the Bible has to say on this issue and it's a superb book. Uh, The first one there, which you can't read, is written by another Englishman called Vaughan Roberts uh, and the book's called Transgender and uh, there's a a coat hanger in the middle of it. Um, This is one of a few books written in a series called Talking Points. Uh, It doesn't tell you everything there is to know about transgender, uh, but for people who might be fairly novice to the idea, not know what's actually going on with that, or what does the Bible have to say, and how should Christians care for one another and reach out to people who might be struggling with what's called gender dysphoria, this is a superb book. Uh, It's easy to read. Um, It's easy to have read to you. I've got an audio copy as well. And I listened to it this afternoon just to refresh my thinking. Very good books, all these three. But for now, what we've got is the best book, and that is the Bible. So let's have a look at what the Scriptures have to say. And one of the things that we notice in Genesis 2 is really quite striking if you've been reading from the beginning. And that is in Genesis 2, verse 18, for the first time we discover something in the creation that is not good. Now, that really stands out. If you'd been listening to the Bible being read to you, which is what everybody did for hundreds and hundreds of years, because the printing press hadn't been developed yet, uh, if you'd been listening to it, you would have had day one, it's good. Day two, it's good. Day three, it's good. Four, five, six. The creation of people, very good. And then in chapter two, Things are going well, and then God says it is not good. What is not good? Well, it is not good for the man to be alone. Loneliness is not good. God desires that we have companionship. Companionship. And so God seeks to make a helper suitable for the man. And so we see when we read on, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground... All the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. And he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the animals, all the livestock, and the birds of the air and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Now something really quite profound is going on here. right? You've got this second account of the creation. Uh, In the first account, in day six, you've got the creation of of people, humankind, male and female, he created them. I want you to see that as like the first camera angle on the creation. 
Um, what you've got with Genesis chapter 2 is like another camera angle looking at the creation and it's emphasising different things. Both are pointing to the one reality but they're emphasising different things about the creation. And in Genesis 2, God creates man and he is Adam and Adam is given all of these plants and animals in the garden But among them all, there is no suitable helper for him. There's no absolutely right companion for Adam. Now, Adam has lots of pets, if you like it. And Adam has God, but he doesn't have a suitable companion. God thinks that he and the created order leave something missing when it comes to the man. And so he makes a suitable helper for him. And as we read on... So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and he closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he'd taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. And the the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Now, in this camera angle on the creation of man and woman, there is a number of beautiful things being revealed. First of all, you've got one like the man. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. There is a sameness that we see between the man and the woman. And in fact, in the English, the word man and the word word woman reflect that, don't they? Um, one is a, a form of the other. So you've got a man and a woman. I'm surprised we haven't got, got rid of the, the language of man and woman yet. We probably will. And you might be thinking, well, that's just English, right? But this is the Hebrew. Uh, I don't know Hebrew, but I take this on very good authority that this is the English form of it. She shall be called Isha, for she was taken out of Ish. Right? There, there's the Hebrew. So what they've done with man and woman in English reflects the way that the Word of God speaks of man and woman in the Hebrew in Genesis chapter 2. So you've got a sameness, a man and a woman, they're they're both the same species, they're both made in the image of God we see from chapter 1, but there's also difference. It's important that we see this difference, that he's made them uh, same but different for the purpose of being complementary. And as we read on to uh, verses 24 and 25, we see God's purpose. For this reason, it says, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, that's an unusual thing to put, isn't it? In Genesis chapter 2. Because so far you've got one man and one woman. And then you get, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. So who is his father and mother? Well, he hasn't actually got any yet. Um, And he's not going to inherit any either. Now, God, in setting up the created order, already has in mind the future. We saw that when we looked at rest last week, didn't we? So he created the world in six days. He rested on the seventh. But he had in mind eternal rest in heaven. But we're going to see some eternal things in mind here as well. Pretty wonderful things. Far bigger than you could ever imagine in terms of the relationship between a man and a woman. But for now, what we see is that here is God's design 
for marriage. God's design is that one woman should be united with one man. That's what marriage should be, complementary. Adam and Eve joining together to make a one flesh, a new relationship together, which is sexual, but it's more than sexual. They're actually united together as one. Now, this is, this is all good at this point. Um, here's the ideal marriage. Here's the template, if you like, for marriages to follow. Um, here's the, the beautiful relationship, the, the husband and wife, both naked, no shame, nothing separating them from each other. But it's not how we see things now. Um, how does now relate to Genesis 2? How, how does the fact that you have this wonderful, complementary uh, comfortably united relationship fit together with conflict in marriages and marriages ending divorce and and people confused about their sexuality and a whole range of different things. How do we get there? Well, that's next week. Next week we look at Genesis chapter 3. But we need to understand marriage in the light of Genesis chapter 3. Otherwise, we're only going to apply it to one couple, Adam and Eve, and only for a little while because things go badly for them. And so what we see when we look at the scriptures uh, is that it doesn't take too long, in fact one more page, for the man and the woman to turn their back upon God. They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they were told not to eat from. They become like God in setting the rules. And as soon as they do that, they realise that things are wrong. They cover themselves up uh, in their shame. They've gone from no shame to shame almost in an instant. They hide from God. They blame each other. What we have now is a picture of relationships outside of the garden. What we're experiencing now is a world that has been subjected to frustration. In fact, God brings this frustration upon us for our rebellion. And, and you, see, you see expressions of this, uh, and we'll look at this more next week, in the curse. But there's, there's two areas here that affect relationships. First of all, to the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. I'm sure there are a lot of women who wish that they were pre-fall women um, who could testify to the reality of the pain that has been uh, brought about through our rejection of God. But there's also a tension now between the husband and the wife says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Um, the word desire there, it, it could mean sexual desire. You desire him. But it could also mean a desire to rule over him. And so the next time we hear this particular uh, word used is in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 7. Let me just read this to you. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So you've got the same pairing, desire and rule. Sin is desiring to rule over Cain, but he must rule over sin. The woman is desiring, it could well be, to rule over Adam, but... Adam will rule over her. And so you've got conflict being built into the, the very nature of the relationship. Now, uh, it might not be that. It might be simply 
that you have one in the relationship desiring something of the other and the other abusing that in response. In fact, what we see right through the Bible from Cain and Abel onwards are the disturbed and distorted relationships that we make of our lives when we leave God out. Now, let's, uh, let's jump forward then to where God takes this in the scriptures. Um, and I want to jump a long way right to the New Testament. Um, so we, we pick it up and we see this language of Genesis 2 being quoted in Ephesians chapter 5. <clears throat> so in Ephesians 5, it says, after talking about husbands and wives, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Now that's a direct quote from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Um, we, we've got it now in Paul's writing about husbands and wives, quoting Genesis 2. But then he says this thing, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Now, I imagine that many of us have heard Genesis chapter 5, verses, uh, what is it, 22 through to 33, I think it is, Used in weddings. What did I say? Genesis. Okay, good. So we've got Hilton and Wilbur confused. Now we've got Genesis and Ephesians confused. Uh, I do have a problem with words my muddling up sometimes, and so I apologise for that. Um, okay, so in Ephesians 5, you probably heard it used at weddings. I used to think it was a good passage to have at a wedding because marriage helped you to understand relationship with God. Because if you look at a marriage, you've got um, a husband and a wife and, and they're loving and sacrificing and serving each other. And then that points to the gospel of God uh, loving the world through Jesus and, and the church responding to Jesus. But I got around the wrong way. Because the profound mystery here is not marriage. Although that is a fairly profound mystery at times. The profound mystery here that he's talking about is Christ and the church. In fact, what he's talking about in that account there of, of the husband living a certain way and the wife living a certain way is first and foremost about the gospel. It actually points, number one, to Jesus and the church. Now that tells us something very profound about Genesis 2, that is God had the gospel in mind from the very beginning. And we know that he did. And that if you want to work things out, start with the gospel and go to marriage. Don't start with an imperfect marriage and try and work out the gospel. And we need to recognise that God has actually created us first and foremost, not simply for relationship with each other in human marriage, but he's created us and recreated us in Christ to have a number one relationship with Jesus. And this gets picked up in a number of other parts of the New Testament. So I'll give you some examples. Whoop, there's uh, going a bit quick. So in Revelation 19, uh, you get this song of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. It's a picture there of the church being united, all God's people together being united with Jesus. And it's described as the wedding of the Lamb and his bride. 
Now, I think there are two problems for us when it comes to understanding biblical language, and that is for women, uh, the Bible keeps talking about being a son or an heir, and some of you don't feel like your sons. Well, spare a thought for us blokes, right? Because we are equated with the bride of Christ, and most of us don't feel like brides either. Right? But the picture here is of us collectively united to Jesus, and Jesus is getting us ready for that final um, full wedding with the Lamb that will go on forever and ever and ever. You see it in other places. So in 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul's writing to the Corinthians and he's concerned that they're, they're actually being badly influenced by false teaching. And he says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband to Christ so that I may present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, Your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You see, faithfulness to Jesus there is following God's word. Unfaithfulness is being led astray and being seduced by the false teachers. And so Paul is calling them back to their relationship with Jesus. And then one more reference here. It doesn't use the marriage relationship, but it does quote from Genesis 2. And it's in 1 Corinthians 6 talking about what we do with our bodies mattering um, and sexual morality. It says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, and then he quotes from Genesis, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit, Flee from sexual immorality. Now, there's a lot to all of this, and we could spend a series looking at these things, but here's the main point. We have been made first and foremost for a relationship with Jesus. And we're called to be faithful to Jesus. It's like we've been betrothed to Jesus. Um, We are not to uh, be unfaithful, seduced to other husbands. No, we are called to be faithful to Jesus. And that will impact even the way that we live sexually. All right, so there's there's two areas that get picked up uh, in the New Testament. Um, Marriage to Christ, the implications for being holy. What about Christian marriage now? And um, if you're following on your outline, I'm on to the second half of the page. That means we're on the home straight. What about Christian marriages now? Well, I think there's some things that we can... Uh, understand from scripture they're there in the beginning they're affirmed throughout and the first thing that we see um, is that in the Bible marriage is a heterosexual monogamous relationship that's God's design for marriage that it be a heterosexual um, monogamous Relationship. His design for marriage. And you can see that in Jesus' words. So in Matthew 19, um, some Pharisees come to Jesus to test him. And they've got a tricky question about divorce. They say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Jesus' reply is to go back to Genesis. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female. And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife 
and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Jesus' reply to questions about relationships, particularly about uh, different reasons or not for divorce, is to go back to the beginning and say, what did the Creator put in place? What were you made for? What was his purpose? And it says his purpose was that the male was, was uh, sorry, the, the, the female and the male were both created, same but different, by God for each other. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. See, it, it's, it's not arbitrary that God creates sexual binary difference. It's actually to do with unity. God creates mankind, male and female, for the purpose of being united together in a one flesh marriage relationship. Now, of course, this raises massive issues, uh, all sorts of things, and we don't have the scope to be able to get into them today. Our country has voted in same-sex marriage. What do we do with that? That's the law. Well, from a justice point of view, my understanding is that it's saying that couples who are united together, who are male and male or female and female, have the same rights under the law as couples who are joined together who are male and female. That was previously the case, but it's being affirmed by giving it the same name. So our country has decided to give a name to homosexual relationships that is the name that is given to a contract between a male and a female where they are promising to each other for life. Now, that's just the world that we live in. The question we need to ask is what is God calling us to? What's he calling his people to? And the Bible's quite clear. He's not calling us to homosexual relationship, sexual relationship, but to heterosexual sexual relationship in the context of marriage. That's the way that God has made it. That's what the Creator did. That's what our Lord and Saviour said. The Creator set it up to be this way. So we're called to show respect for the people around about us in our community. But when it comes to us thinking about what marriage actually is, when it comes to us as parents teaching and training our children, when it comes to us uh, working through an issue with somebody who's a new Christian, our focus will be the Word of God and not simply the Modified Marriage Law Act. We need to understand that there's a difference between following God and at times following the state. Now at this point we're not being asked on this issue to be disobedient. In fact there is provision for a Christian marriage celebrant like myself to say no I only marry male and female um, to each other. That's, that's what we do. But of course that puts you out of step with those around about you and it's important that we understand where it comes from. Um, now, this issue here is uh, it's not simply a matter of uh, male and female making a good marriage, um, but there's actually built into it the whole notion of faithfulness. 
So you see the last verse there? So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. God's plan for marriage was that it be a perpetual relationship. In fact, I've got some marriage vows here with me at the moment. And uh, I've got a wedding coming up in a few weeks. And I just happened to have this on my desk and I had a look at it. And I'll read to you, right? So this is just a set of vows. And um, this is what I'll be using uh, with different names, I'll tell you, uh, in, in a couple of weeks' time. It says, I, Adam, in the presence of God, take you, Eve, to be my wife, uh, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, as long as we both shall live. This is my solemn vow and promise. And then Eve will turn to Adam and And she'll say, I, Eve, in the presence of God, take you, Adam, to be my husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish as long as we both shall live. This is my solemn vow and promise. Now, I think these vows, these promises, reflect what God has put in place. They're not a vow that says... Uh, I love you at the moment, so things are good. Yeah, let's shack up. It's not simply saying, I'll love you so long as the love sticks around. It's saying, I'll stick around whatever. That's the nature of the vow. In fact, these traditional vows are really quite helpful, aren't they, when they say, for better, worse, richer, poorer, sickness and in health. Um, And I think it's probably good that we don't have a crystal ball and know all the things that are going to be coming. Don't know if Fiona had married me if, uh, if, if the sickness and health thing was laid out there in advance. You see, God's calling us to put our relationship with the marriage partner before the circumstances that affect us. But things can get difficult, can't they? There can be problems, there can be struggles. You've got two sinful people trying to work out a new relationship with each other. Sometimes it doesn't take very long until there is conflict again and there are difficulties. Where do we turn? What does the scriptures say? One of the things I discovered was soon after I got married, every sermon I ever listened to was about marriage, telling me areas that I needed to change. And I don't think we simply need marriage passages to show that God's word speaks to all of life. But let me read you some other words. At one seminar where I was speaking, this is not me, but it's from a book, on the concept of proactivity, this was a business conference, a man came up and he said to me, I like what you're saying, but every situation's so different. Look at my marriage, he said. I'm really worried. My wife and I just don't have the same feelings for each other that we used to have. I guess I just don't love her anymore and she doesn't love me. What can I do? The feeling isn't there anymore, I asked. That's right, he affirmed. And and we have three children that we're really concerned about. What do you suggest? Love her, I replied. I told you, the feeling just isn't there anymore. Love her. You don't understand. The feeling of love just isn't there. Then love her. If the feeling isn't there, that's a good reason to love her. But how do you love when you don't love? My friend, he said... Love is a verb. Love the feeling is a fruit of love, the verb. So love her, serve her, 
Sacrifice, listen to her, empathise, appreciate, affirm her. Are you willing to do that? He goes on in the great literature of society, love is a verb. Reactive people make it a feeling. They're driven by feelings. Hollywood has genuinely scripted us to believe that we are not responsible, that we're a product of our feelings. But the Hollywood script does not describe the reality. If our feelings control our actions, it's because we've abdicated our responsibility and empowered them to do so. Proactive people make love a verb. Love is something you do, the sacrifices you make, the giving of yourself, like a mother bringing a newborn into the world. If you want to study love, study those who sacrifice for others. Interesting, this guy's not a Christian. But if you want to study love, then study Jesus, who sacrificed his life for others. Even for people who offend or do not love in return, that's Jesus. If you're a parent, look at the love that you have for the children you've sacrificed for. Love is a value that is actualised through loving actions. Proactive people subordinate feelings to values. Love, the feeling, can be recaptured. Very encouraging words um, to find in a business psychological book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Well, friends... There is a lot that we can see here about the shape of marriage. Um, And we've actually looked at marriage uh, a number of times already by our working through the book of 1 Corinthians. We've seen various things. Um, We will see there's the importance there of faithfulness in marriage for leaders. The husband of one wife literally means a a one-woman man, faithful to one woman. And, uh, and then the widows being faithful to the husband, a one uh, man, woman. Ephesians 5, the model we've looked at, 1 Corinthians 7, talking about how the husband gives himself to his wife, the wife to her husband, that our bodies do not belong to us anymore, but to the other. So we should be willing to give for the sake of each other. There's a lot that we can look at here. But I want us to finish by reflecting on how what God has put into place is to shape our relationships with one another, our relationships in marriage, and our relationships with Jesus. I think there's a few things that we can see. The first thing is in a society which is now incredibly I, individualistic, God says it is not good to be alone. If you want to break a person's spirit... Put them in solitary confinement. It's proven everywhere. Just long enough, you'll break them down. We were made to be in relationship with each other. It doesn't matter whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. We've been made for relationship. We've been made in God's image and he's a relational God. That shouldn't surprise us. Companionship is a good thing. Loneliness is a bad thing. We have been made to share And one of the incredible blessings of being part of the people of God, of gathering together in Christian community, is that we see that. And what we experience in church, sadly, so many others just miss out on what we take for granted. Let's value the relationships that we have with one another. In fact, in the original Greek, one another is one word. It's a a lovely word. Alleluus, one another. Alleluus. And it occurs 46 times from memory in the New Testament. Just 
If you get hold of a... Well, you don't even need a concordance these days. All you need is a computer. Go to Bible Gateway and type in one another. And look at how many references there are to how we are to live with one another. Love one another, encourage one another, spur on one another, be kind to one another, speak the truth to one another. And, and the one another element is just the, the fulfilment of what God has created for relationship that, that we share in our companionship with each other and especially amongst the family of God. We've been made for each other, not to be alone. You see somebody is lonely, reach out to them. Love one another. Be kind to one another. Bless one another. Relationship with God. Yes, that's our primary relationship. Having pets, dogs who are faithful and love us. Yes, a wonderful gift from God. But God's made us for companionship with others. Secondly, marriage. Uh, I think this is a clarion word in a society that is muddled, that's confused. And a society where, if I can put it in these terms, a very small progressive elite are lobbying full bore a particular agenda. They are marginalising those who would take a traditional God-shaped view of relationships. It's interesting, um, a friend of mine pointed me to a Facebook post from the Chief Minister of the ACT yesterday. Um, Some of you might not know, but we don't have a Premier in Canberra. We have a Chief Minister for Canberra's local government. His name is Andrew Barr. And uh, he's he's put on Facebook just yesterday uh, that uh, they are going to be banning conversion therapy. Now, this is conversion therapy for people with homosexual Uh, attraction or inclination or born that way or however you want to put it is banning conversion therapy now I I think in and of itself that's a great statement to be making because there's some atrocious things that have gone on under the name conversion therapy but it's interesting on on Facebook there are a number of responses to what he had to say and one man and I don't know if he's a Christian but he said this he said "Um, good oh but have you defined exactly what conversion therapy is Would this include, say, churches preaching a biblical sexual ethic from the pulpit? And uh, interestingly, Andrew Barr, although it's probably not him, it's probably just a spokesman writing his Facebook account, uh, very conveniently skips over the actual question and then talks about a whole catalogue of things that have been horrific, including um, electric shock to the genitals and nausea-inducing drugs and and all of these things, um, and says more recently... Uh, techniques including counselling, visualisation, social skills training, psychoanalytic theory and spiritual interventions such as prayer and group support. Now, you can start to get a little worried then, can't you? Because what if somebody is praying for somebody else? And what if they're doing that publicly? And then this guy, uh, in reply a little further, says, Thanks for verifying, um, Chief Minister. But just to be clear, how exactly do you plan on regulating what churches preach from the pulpit and what's discussed in Bible studies or growth groups, especially in churches of a more biblically-based and or conservative sexual ethic? And then at that point, there's a a fairly political-speak response and then it degenerates into people calling each other names, which is what you'll find in any comment section, so don't go too deep. 
But my friend who's... Bless you. My, my friend who's, uh, who's written an article on this, a little tongue-in-cheek, says, Chief Minister, I think you have created an excellent thing, uh, in effect, he says, and in fact, we should extend your um, restrictions to anything that's said about sex that doesn't line up with progressive agenda anywhere. In fact, you can see where I'm going, Chief Minister. This is an opportunity for job creation, he says. Because you can set up a whole department dedicated to ensuring compliance by churches, mosques and synagogues, in which sermons and readings could be cross-checked for any hint of traditional orthodox views on Christianity or sexuality. Sorry, sexuality. In fact, you could call it a name, something fun and cuddly like Department of Kindness, Goodness and Beauty, or KGB for short. Um, uh, blue-collar employment opportunities, you could retrofit offices and so on, small business opportunities in the area of surveillance equipment, um, elite opportunities for the 1% who could be employed as agents to infiltrate the very organisations that are posing a threat to your agenda. In fact, whether it's a would-be agent learning the Quran and how to say Allahu Akbar with the right intonation or memorising the Torah and reciting the Shema in Hebrew or even wearing 1990s-style chinos and an untucked shirt in order to infiltrate the local independent evangelical church, there are jobs galore for everyone who sees this as their calling. Now, it's, it's tongue-in-cheek. It's, it's a clever response to this. But, and we might laugh at this stuff, but this is exactly what we see going on in China. It's exactly what's going on. Infiltrating, surveillance clamping down, one message, no deference from that. Well, friends, we don't have to be worried about that. No, we don't. Because the creator God has made us in his image and he's made us for relationship with each other and he'll help us in those relationships as hard as they might be. As I said, we're only going to scratch the surface on this this afternoon. And I want to finish with this. We've been made, first and foremost, we've been betrothed to be married to Jesus. So whether you're single or whether you're married, whether you're married or whether you've been divorced, whether you're widowed, whatever stage of life you're in, you are made for relationship with Jesus. And that marriage is the one that should shape all of life and our aspirations for eternity. Let's thank God for that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great God that you are. Thank you for your grace towards us in forgiving us our sinfulness, our selfishness, for bringing us into relationship through your son Jesus. We thank you that we have an eternity with Christ to look forward to and we pray that you'll keep us faithful to Jesus. We also come before you acknowledging that that it can be hard being married um, and that as we struggle with our own weakness and our own selfishness, our own struggles, that it can be difficult loving one another. And we ask for your help, for your strength. And Father, we pray for those who are alone, those who are without friends, 
those who are suffering. And we ask that you'll help us to do our little bit where we are, to be companions, to speak words of kindness, to do practical things for the sake of others. We ask that you will use us to be a witness to the truth of the gospel in what we say and to back that up in how we act. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.